Hello, I'm Josina Kameling. Um, this is uh, the second podcast on the financial services relationship between the US and the EU, with a more particular focus on investor protection and product governance issues. With me, I have Jim Allen, a CFA who is head of the America's Capital Markets Policy at CFA Institute, um, which um, position he has held uh, almost 20 years. And I think I say this not because I want to make you feel old, Jim, um, but really uh, because it shows your experience and you have seen the effects, you've seen the financial crisis of 2008 and you've seen um, the regulations and, and acts that came into being because of it. And I think specifically when we look at investor protection, that's important because the first financial crisis of 2008, the global financial crisis, really threw up uh, weaknesses of investor protection frameworks uh, in Europe, in the US, but around the world. Um, in the EU, uh, cases of mis-selling were related to the inadequacy of the MIFID one regulatory framework, but also of member states' uh, securities legislation. Um, it, it, as a consequence, a whole new regulatory framework called MIFID II was put into place, um, really with very particular attention to the product governance chain, uh, to the right information documents for investors, um, and really looking at all the investor protection angle and the transparency of information. Again, the objective was to strike a right balance between boosting participation in the capital market, something the EU has been chasing, that retail participation in its capital markets, which of course has been existing in the US for a long time. And also um, bearing in mind that the EU didn't have um, a strong consumer redress framework, which is something that has been voted on in the EP plenary this week, and this finally came into being 12 years in the making. Um, and, and that, again, was important in trying to boost investment across, across Europe. But new product intervention rules in MIFID too really have um, um, struck at increased transparency in specifically complex products. And this is now uh, much more um, uh, supervised and, and, and much closer looked at both by the EU supervisory authorities and the national competent authorities. But inducement uh, related rules were hotly debated when MIFID II came into being. And again, um, MIFID II wanted to increase transparency for investors, both in the cost of research and trading commissions. And they wanted unbundling of this. Now there was, uh, of course, the UK had a total unbundling and the Netherlands followed suit. Um, it, it wasn't quite as stark for other EU countries. Uh, so it does, the directive doesn't ban inducements, but it restricts the use of them. Um, and again, this, this is uh, being discussed now. Should there still be a total ban on uh, inducements or not? So this discussion isn't out of the way. In the US, um, in the aftermath of the financial crisis, the US focused much more on fiduciary duty and the need to have rules on conflicts of interest. Jim, um, what has been done? And maybe uh, give us a flavor also the divergences from, from the EU as it followed its MIFID II path. Well, thank you once again, uh, Josina. And uh, as, as to my age, I can tell you that I recall when 
MIFID was, I recall MIFID one, and I actually recall when it was called the Investment Services Directive, even before MIFID. Uh, but I like to call my, I like to think of myself as a child prodigy as opposed to being that old. Anyway, um, with regard to, uh, with regard to, you know, the di divergence, I'm not, you know, in many ways, I'm not so sure that the divergence, I mean, the, the, there's certainly a divergence in terminology used, you know, as you point out, fiduciary duty is something that, that we look at. It's a means of basically saying, you have to put your client's interests first. That basically means that, you know, if you've got conflicts of interest, it's not just it's not just a matter of disclosing those conflicts of interest. You have to actively manage to make sure that they are not interfering with putting your client's interest in your client's best interest first. Um, so, you know, I, I think that's more or less what what the EU is trying to get at with with their inducements legislation as well. You know, the, the reason we sort of focused on fiduciary duty post financial crisis was that you'd already had the system in place. It'd been in place since 19, I think it was 1940 was when the, was when the Investment Advisors Act came into place. Now the Investment Advisors Act, that statue led to the common law interpretations that created the fiduciary, the fiduciary standards, the fiduciary duty on which investment advisors had to had to uh, act with regard to their clients so it wasn't necessarily the statute that led to it here in the in in the us but nevertheless it was there uh, dodd frank tried to address it with some provisions it was really kind of an awkward provision they basically came out with with one aspect said, okay, well, the SEC can create a fiduciary duty for brokers when they're dealing with, you know, providing individualized uh, advice to retail clients, but they can only do so for the moment that they're providing that, that uh, advice. In other words, once that advice was given, they'd go back to being, you know, the, the, the law at the time or the, the mandate at the time, the duty of care uh, was suitability uh, as opposed to fiduciary. But they had to give, you know, but the idea was in Dodd-Frank that you could give that fiduciary, you can have a fiduciary duty at the moment of providing the advice. And then it went away right afterwards. You said that to anybody who is an investment advisor here in the US, they basically, they got this look of incredulity on their faces. Like, how could they have possibly come up with that one? Because if you've got a fiduciary duty, it's not just at that moment. It, it, it extends from the moment you give that advice until you know that advice is unwound. Let's say I advise you, you should buy you know, the shares of Apple computer or something along those lines. Well, and you hold on to it for 20 years. I have that, for, you know, and I'm still your advisor. I still have fiduciary duty to you to be monitoring what is happening with regard to that, to that investment. And to say that I only had that fiduciary duty at the moment I said you should buy that is just, just ridiculous on its face. So it was, a, you know, it was a, it was a rough, and sort of not particularly well done 
uh, approach with, with regard to uh, fiduciary duty in Dodd-Frank, but it did at least sort of raise the specter of it. So we, you know, and from our, well, we, you know, from our standpoint, we thought that there were ways to make that, that fundamentally you had to make sure that investors knew who they were dealing with. And we, you know, sent some, a number of letters, I think starting in 2010, basically saying, hey, you need to get control of the titles. It's already part of the Investment Advisors Act. Uh, you should actually just extend that to uh, the title for advisor. Yeah, being pragmatic, um, that, that is what, it, what, what is necessary. And sometimes regulators can, uh, can, cut, uh, uh, can cut a piece in various, in various ways, which doesn't then make sense of the whole, right? Well, in, in, in our response was, in, in, once again, it was kind of a pragmatic response because we could see that, that in 2000, the 2010 election brought in a new Congress. Now, all of a sudden, you, instead of Democrats being in charge of, of the House, um, it was now Republicans. And they were not going to go for a significant regulation of the industry. Regardless, they're just not, they're not geared towards increasing regulation beyond what needs to be. And our approach was essentially to say, hey, you've already got the tools in the Advisors Act, just take advantage of it and take control of this. Once you get control of the titles, you will then be able to determine how much and what other things need to be need to be regulated and it'll be a much smaller thing i used to always compare it to is like it would be to try to create a fiduciary duty in statute it would have the girth of the old new york city phone book but would have the texture of swiss cheese because you had to create all these carve outs all these exemptions for different circumstances, for different people and different people in different circumstances. And it would just end up being a just total mayhem just to get control of the titles, figure out how, how much or how little that addresses, then start dealing with the other parts of the regulation. And so, you know, I think in, in the end, we won a little bit, we got, we got a little bit in that way, but uh, with the SEC, but not as far as we thought it should go. And in fact, what they ended up doing was creating a rule that's about has about the girth of the New York City phone book, and it has all sorts of uh, exemptions and carve outs, much like Swiss cheese. So. <laughs> love, love this image. This I, I think I'll keep this image with me of a, a New York telephone book with uh, the the holes of Gruyere cheese. It used to be about it used to be about four, five, three or four inches thick. You know. <laughs> <laughs> now, when we look at misselling. Um, how how did how did the U.S. regulator deal with mis-selling? I mean, we we had the famous Wells Fargo case, uh, which is a textbook example, also in Europe, um, and we've seen in this COVID crisis that mis-selling is rampant again, unfortunately. So, um, what uh, what did you see as as lessons that could be taken forward and how to deal with mis-selling um, in in this crisis? Well, I remember speaking with someone in the international division at the SEC, and this was probably seven, six, seven, eight years ago. And they were basically saying, in the US, we have this approach of the, the, bar, the, the barriers to entry are fairly low. You can get in, 
you know, both as a company as well as, as as a professional into the industry. But once you get in, you're gonna you have a bar. I mean, a a, a you know a bar for performance that's quite high. And if you don't do that, there's a fairly robust mechanism for uh, enforcement. And in many ways, you know, dealing with mis-selling was, you know, in in many ways, a an enforcement action as opposed to, you know, sort of, you know, trying to create, you know, new rules. Like I said, when we tried, when when our recommendation was get control of the titles, what the SEC did was they came up with regulation best interest what they what their perspective on this was that by raising the standards of care for brokers through regulation best interest that it would enhance the quality and the standard of care to you know to uh, you know with regard to advice to retail investors and i remember being asked by uh, staff at the sec in, in one meeting that wouldn't isn't that preferable to maintaining the current system of sustainable and not sustainability but uh, um, uh, you know fiduciary duty as opposed to um, as opposed to uh, you know the the interest of I mean the brokers basically giving the suitability standard there, and to you know to I basically answered that in a letter that said actually investors are more you know to to marginally increase the quality of the of care through regulation best interest which is what they did. And calling it best interest, which is which actually goes back to an old de- Department of Labor rule under the under the uh, Obama administration, it was regu- it was be- best interest. Um, it was a best interest contract that they that brokers had to sign with their clients. It ended up getting done away with in uh, as in 2017 because it had, uh, through various machinations of the U.S. government, but that use that terminology so it's going to confuse investors even more and then just marginally increase the quality of the care you don't define what best interest is you don't define how you get there um, but you just use that terminology and we basically said no actually it'd be better for investors to understand and be able to distinguish between discern between what is uh, suitability and what is best interest. Best interest basically took a largely uh, a, a, the the primary approach is disclosing conflicts of interest. That's the primary means by which they did it, and we just didn't agree with that. And we kind of go back to once again the title reform that we thought was was the better approach. And when we when we look at MIFID, uh, another key issue in the MIFID II reform was that of the unbundling of investment research, uh, whereby brokers have to establish a price for investment research separately from execution services, and this applies to all asset classes. Um, again, asset management firms had to adapt uh, their specific research budgets and either pass them on the cost to the clients or absorb the cost of research themselves. Um, we uh, have been very actively involved in the debate on this because our members uh, 
already in 2013 uh, in a survey on SME access to finance uh, discussed that uh, investment research had been falling and that specifically SMEs were being impacted. So this was even before the MIFID II reform. We now come to the COVID crisis and um, we see uh, even before the COVID crisis that there was a lot of uh, discussion in the EU national member states, notably in France, uh, with its large SME community on how MIFID II was impacting investment research. And the quick fix, which was a COVID response by the EU Commission on uh, some specific pieces of regulation, uh, tried to rebundle uh, some aspects of this investment research. So the Commission there proposed the exemption of current rules for SMEs. Um, there would be an optional exemption as joint payments would still be allowed by the investment uh, firm and the research provider if they agree on the fee amounts. Um, but again, um, there was a hot debate on this and um, it, 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 there isn't really a consensus. And the view really is that um, possibly uh, the, there needs to be much more market research on what is causing uh, that, uh, that impact on investment research, whether it's on big companies, there are fewer analysts following the calls, uh, the regular calls, or on, on SMEs. Um, and this is something that CFA Institute has, has been noting um, to the EU Commission and to the European Supervisory Authority. Now, in, in the US, Jim, has it been any different? Have you also seen um, a, a decrease in, in provision of investment research to notably the SME um, uh, sector? Well, I think I, I, we did a research report looking at this issue last year, 2019. And one of the things that, and, I, and I, I'm not sure I found it, but I, I know that I, I recall reading about how when we were looking at sort of the US version of the of the Big Bang in 1970, I think it was 75 was we did away with uh, fixed commissions. And they were already lamenting at the fact that research for small companies was on the on the decline in 1974, 1975. So, you know, that it's it's been sort of a universal issue dating back going on, you know, going on uh, uh, 45 years now. Um, on top of that, you didn't, you know, the industry didn't do itself any favors in the 1990s with the very conflicted research that came out with regard to tech telecom companies. Um, so there was a bit of a, you know, why should we pay attention to this research? And then, of course, you throw on top of that the credit rating agencies and their conflicts and the lead up to the financial crisis 2008. And there's been some, you know, probably some some further drop off. That being said, of course, it very much definitely needs to, you know, investors can benefit substantially from what especially retail investors can benefit. In fact, I'd say institutional investors benefit quite greatly from the perceptions, interpretations, analyses of uh, professional investors, professional uh, analysts, and whatever can be done to try to remedy that would be beneficial. Now, some of the remedies that have been proposed, uh, they tried to raise the tick 
um, uh, create a uh, tick standard in the U.S. on a on a, um, a pilot program where they raise the ticks from like one penny to like a nickel, and didn't actually have that effect. I, I think when, in many ways we we had been saying that. Uh, you know, the spreads between bid and ask were greater than the five, five cent uh, tick that they were looking at, and it wasn't really going to do any good. And sure enough, it didn't. Uh, they realized that they ended the, the pilot and, uh, you know, went searching elsewhere for, for remedies. So, you know, that's one of them I've heard others basically say, you know, maybe we need to go back to fixed commissions for, for small uh, companies, and they, you know, and and you know, so long there there are a number of things that need to be taken care of. You know, small companies need to be researched and being given. You know, investors need to have information about these companies so that they know whether they're legitimate, whether they're um, you know just a ticking time bomb or whatever. Um, but investors need that kind of research and whatever needs to be done, you know, so long as it's done carefully, thoughtfully, and not in a, you know, sort of a haphazard way uh, that uh, doesn't consider the, in the interests of, of the interests of investors, the interests of the intermediaries, i.e. the brokers and who have to create the research, the interests of you know the uh, uh, of of the companies themselves. You know you got that that three-legged stool that if one of those legs is too short, then it's not going to stand. And we just need to kind of look at that. So, yeah, and uh, with by mentioning the three-legged stool, you 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 highlight how complex this is and uh, how it needs to be fine-tuned. So I think COVID will uh, increase the need to to look at a pragmatic um, uh, way to address this. Jim, thank you very much. Uh, it's been really a pleasure to listen also to your experience uh, from pre the 2008 crisis and what you've seen uh, in, your, in your dealings with the US regulator. Um, look forward to another talk with you. Thank you very much. Look forward to it too, bye-bye.